I'm Alexandra DeSanctis, and I'm one of the hosts of National Review's Ordered Liberty podcast. My co-host, David French, and I discuss all the latest in political news, and especially the intersections between politics, culture, and faith. We approach these topics with a focus on the Constitution and the importance of our founding values. And every once in a while, you can even catch us talking about our clashing views on sports and pop culture. You can listen to Ordered Liberty at nationalreview.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. It, this week, we're brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Uh, we'll hear more about them in a little bit. But I'm actually very excited about this podcast. I've wanted to do this podcast, uh, this episode, I should say, for uh, six months or something like that. Um, maybe even longer because friend of the podcast, AI colleague, Tim Carney, has been working on this book that actually fills in the gaps of my 30,000-foot thumbsuckery um, really, really, really well, and it is a much-needed book, and we'll talk more about why it's needed in a moment. But first, uh, welcome aboard Tim Carney, author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Thanks, Jonah. So uh, I want to be very clear to, to, to my listeners. I think it is I, – I, and long-time listeners know I don't normally do this. I often praise the books that people have, but sometimes I criticize them. I really want – this book to become a big bestseller, and you really should get it. And I've relied on on Tim's other books, particularly the Big Ripoff. Which, mm-hmm. uh, if you read the footnotes of liberal fascism, you'll find that it was of much help to me back then. But this book kind of hits this sweet spot between uh, the stuff that Robert Putnam was writing in twenty in two thousand two thousand. Yep, and Charles Murray and coming apart. It is almost an extended it's like if you took the the chapter i have in suicide of the west on civil society and decided to make a whole book about it with actual reporting and a lot more data it would be this it ties in really well with ben sass's them um and it's uh sort of like a irish catholic ward healing uh reporter's version of yuval levin's brain (laughs) so um why don't you tell everybody what it's about rather than me tell everybody what it's about so it's about the real struggles of the working class are cannot be explained through economics alone. They can't be seen from 30,000 feet. They have to be seen on the human level, on the local level. And it's about the erosion of the institutions of civil society, the community organizations, the clubs, the local governments. Most importantly, I argue, the church. And the the front of Alienated America is a, a shuttered church in North Dakota because I think the when we look at things like deaths of despair, uh, you know, suicides, drug overdoses, alcohol deaths, when we look at men dropping out of the labor force, when we look at out-of-wedlock births and the retreat from marriage, economics plays a factor. But the 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 proximate cause is that people – in so much of America don't have those strong institutions. They're not connected to other people through these clubs and organizations. They instead have themselves, maybe a nuclear family, but usually not a strong one, and then a government overhead and often little else. And so if we want to understand, A, the struggles of the working class, and B, why Donald Trump got the Republican nomination, we need to understand this alienation that happens on a local level when people are not connected to institutions. Right. Uh, the way I've sort of 
come around to explaining this point of view is that the the right to pursue happiness is an individual right, but the ability to realize happiness only happens in communities. That's right. Right? We are social animals. We need to live in groups. We get our meaning from groups. And when the groups aren't healthy, we don't lose this taste for desire to be part of a group, but we start to look to things like government, particularly the government in Washington, to give us the meaning we're not getting close to home or at home. Right? Yeah. I mean, you could think of the some of the same things that some people think individualism and just being able to pursue whatever you want whenever you want, that's a good thing. Some people think that that is the path to the good life. And a lot of people will argue, well, if we need to help people who are, are suffering, who are not working, who don't have enough money, then we need government programs to do it. And that, again, we do need government programs. But all of these things that we're trying to solve with public policy or with, you know, just more self-actualization, all of those things are really what humans get from connection to others. And not just knowing people and not just having your friends, but from connections that are a little bit sticky. And mm. through these institutions that we're free to enter and free to leave, but that hold us in, that are still relational and not simply transactional, that's where we get access to the good life. And I, I try to do it through reporting, through lots of data. And as you know, you mentioned Yuval, um, Charles Murray, Robert Putnam, Raj Chetty, lots of researchers did all this that paints, uh, all this amazing work that I was able to draw on that paints this picture that I think is pretty convincing that people do well when they're in strong communities and specifically in America, if you're not in a strong religious community and you're not in an elite circle where everybody has college degrees, there's a very good chance you probably don't have those strong institutions that in that define the America that Tocqueville saw or that Norman Rockwell portrayed or that some of us grew up in. Right. So um, for disclosure to the audience, what was the what was the anti-Catholic ad hominem that I loved, mackerel snapper? Yeah, <laughs> mackerel snapper. You are a, a, a devout mackerel snapper. Yes. Yes. And um, for listeners who can't pick it up, I don't use it as a pejorative. I just I think it's <laughs> great writing. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I often refer to uh, Jewish neocons as bagel-snarfing warmongers. So there you go. Anyway, um, but so you are, you are a proud Catholic, but part of your point is that um, or I should say pious Catholic, pride's a sin. But part of your point is it doesn't matter, the theology matters less than the institutional role that organized religion plays. When we're talking about sociological outcomes. Yeah, not getting into heaven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, 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 salvation is a different issue. That, that's a different issue. That's a future but, podcast. Yes, and in fact, so when people start to hear my thesis, one of the big objections they get is, well, aren't the there bad outcomes and heavy Trump support in evangelical circles in the South? And one of the things I try to remind people, I'm not talking about sort of profundity of belief or how important it is to you. Uh, the number one statistic is that matters is attendance. And to put that in a more human way, do you belong to a religious institution? For the working class and the middle class, that is the most important question to predict whether they're going to have life satisfaction and good outcomes as far as uh, finishing school, having a job, staying employed, not doing drugs. Do you belong to something? And this is key because 
there's all sorts of – as America is secularized and people go to church less – for the elites, who, by the way, still go to church a decent amount, go to Brett uh, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, parish in in Chevy Chase, Blessed Sacrament, and the pews are for much the beer <laughs> <laughs> and wine and wine. Um, yeah. But the uh, but you go to that parish, the pews are much more full there than they are down in rural Southern Maryland, where mm-hmm. one of my friends is a priest. But Anyway, as America is secularized, the elites have other institutions. They have alumni circles. They have um, – we have just – we have jobs where our colleagues are our friends and it's reliable, et cetera. And those institutions aren't as present in the working class and the middle class. So as America has secularized, the working class and the middle class have lost those connections, the modeling, the the safety net, the sense of purpose that comes from belonging to something is absolutely crucial. And I think for everybody, having a religious institution is, is crucial for their sociological purposes, but it's, uh, it's, there's nothing replacing it among the working class and the middle class. Right. So uh, I don't actually don't want to dwell for a long time on Trump, but since you alluded to it and it's part of the sort of the news hook for the book, why don't you sort of lay out the, the data or the, the point about the communities that yeah. were resistant to Trumpism versus the ones that weren't? And it's... It's not it's not just a news hook it's actually how I sort of discovered the whole thing. A lot right. of times this the what we lead a column with isn't the way we came about it but this is what it is. The early primaries is what we're talking about here. So we're not talking about Trump versus Hillary. We're talking about there's 17 guys in the caucuses, there's 12 guys in a, there's you know five or six guys in a in a primary in Wisconsin or Maryland. And so one thing I found in Iowa was that his weakest county Trump's weakest county was Sioux County, Iowa. There were, he got 10 or 11 percent there. There were a handful of others where he also got really low percentage. I had been out there in part because I'd met this this couple from Iowa where the woman said she was from Orange City. And being an Irish Catholic, I thought, <laughs> OK, what orange is this? I'm starting to get, getting ready to fight. Are these a bunch of Ulster men marching through the streets? Orange refers to their Dutch heritage. Orange City is in Sioux County. I go out to Sioux County. Everybody there is Holly Vander or something. Mm-hmm. They had no interest in Trump. They also had incredibly strong communities. One college professor's husband said, well, out here they vote right, but they live left. And I thought, well, what are they talking about? Are they pot smokers and swingers? Mm-hmm. Or, no, he meant – he said, well, no, they, you look after your neighbors. You take care of them. So again, that, right. that pisses me off. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I go with what he means. And – I asked around, sure, incredibly strong sense of duty to one's neighbor, social cohesion, social trust, and Trump bombs there. So then Michigan's happening. Holland, Michigan, and the f- counties around it have the same incredibly high Dutch population. Uh, Trump bombs in western Michigan around Holland, Michigan, while winning the rest of the state. And so then I went out to Oostburg, Wisconsin, this Dutch town in Wisconsin. Uh, Cruz won the state, beating Trump. And Trump won most of rural Wisconsin, but Cruz dominated Trump getting only 15 percent in Oostburg where everybody was Dutch. Mm-hmm. And But in Oostburg, I saw what this was about. There were people coming out of the – to the diner from with their kids from the 9 o'clock at the first Christian Reform, the 915 at the first Reformed Church of America, the 10 o'clock at Bethel Orthodox, etc. The, the Dutch Reformed churches had built these really tight-knit communities with – Almost their own mini welfare state for people who were, were suffering there, uh, a lot of infrastructure for people to raise families. So that's one model. 
The other model is about 10, 15 miles from my house, Chevy Chase, Maryland. I already referred to it. Wealthy a house there is 10 times the cost of a house in Oostburg. Sure enough, Trump gets 15%. Now, your listeners probably know that the liberal elites, the type who live in, in Chevy Chase, aren't in fact swinging pot smokers. Mm-hmm. They practice what we conservatives preach. Right. And, and you're talking about Republican primary voters. And yeah, so Republican right, so primary voters. You're so taking the liberals out of it. And they voted for Kasich, so they're more right. liberal. But you could look at Chevy Chase and say, oh, well, that's liberal, moderate, swamp Republicans rejecting Trump. And you could look at Oostburg and Salt Lake City and those others and say, oh, well, that's a bunch of Bible-thumping conservatives. But I argue, no, these two phenomena are the same thing. And they're people who live in places with strong institutions of civil society. They see the American dream as being alive. Mm-hmm. Trump in the early primaries, his core early support was people who saw the American dream as dead. And so he bombed in the places where the American dream was the most alive. So there we go. We've now gone through Trump, landed at the American dream, and we can transition out of Trump if you want. Okay, a a good um, off-rant from Trump while still sort of staying relevant to the points is, did you see a similar phenomenon with Bernie Sanders? It's a lot more complicated with Bernie Sanders, but what I did see... When I went to Occupy Wall Street, that's in 2011 before right. this book is even a twinkle in my eye. I After Occupy D.C., where everybody's arguing, well, there's no teeth to the enforcement of the Volcker rule and the Dodd-Frank. <laughs> I, I go down there expecting to be able to write a column about, hey, they oppose bailouts and dumb wars just like I do. But I couldn't ever get anybody to talk about policy. Yeah, They were always talking about, well, the – Rich have too much power and they oppose campaign finance and Citizens United and they keep out the voices of regular people. But once they never got beyond that, Mm -hmm. once they're all powerful, all all in the smoky room and you're locked out, what is it they're doing in there that you oppose? Right. And it was silencing the voice of the people. There was no there. But ultimately what this was about, I realized, was a desire to flex one's political muscle, a feeling of – alienation. Mm. And sure enough, when you would go to the Trump rallies, all sorts of people, I quote Joseph Kubosh in Alienated America, I quote him saying, before this, I never thought there was any hope, any reason to get involved in politics. And here in a Republican primary on a cold day in Wisconsin, he's standing outside a rally for four hours from zero involvement to this sort of involvement because there was that sense, we don't have the ability to flex our political muscles and it's it's largely because of this alienation, because they don't have the institutions in which they play a role. I get to ask somebody to regroom the infield at St. Andrew Apostle because I'm connected to this institution. Right. I get to help my local government actually listens to what I'm saying. I'm, I have these connections to institutions that allows me to act out my nature as a political animal. And so many people, the Bernie Sanders Occupy Wall Street phenomenon was largely about – Young millennial saying, well, I don't have – they didn't have the institutions, but right. they thought what they needed was the ability to lobby Congress. So uh, I want to come back to that in a minute. But the – so what was it? About 10 percent of the electorate voted for both Obama and for Trump. Yep. It would seem to me that your thesis would support the idea that that 10 percent was overrepresented in the communities that you're talking about. That's exactly right. Um First of all, a big part of the alienated electorate was people who never voted before. Right. But another part was people who went for Obama for hope and change and then went for Trump to burn it all down. 
and Fayette County, Pennsylvania is in the book, and that's a place that was 50-50 in 2008, and then Trump wins it by 30 points in, in 2016. And there's a lot of places that fit exactly that. And what I try to argue is that if you look at just the economics, you're not getting the whole picture because mm-hmm. there are a lot of places that have had economic bad times or there's a lot of places that are perfectly middle class that still have this same sort of behavior. One county in Iowa, Fremont, has the same income almost as, as Sioux County, mm-hmm. but it was an Obama place and then a, and then a Trump place. And it what was happening there was the institutions, the churches were closing and it became uh, a place of alienation and people were looking for what they thought would be a radical change. And again, it's not just about economics. You want that radical change if – you look around and you feel like you're in a, a, a civil desert. Right. So one of the points that I got from Charles Murray, which I often invoke, is uh, how to put this. The If you imagine a giant sort of Rube Goldberg machine, no relation, uh, and at the, at the very core of it is a little hamster wheel. The hamster wheel, depending on how you define it's sort of a chicken or the egg thing, the hamster wheel is either wives or husbands in the sense that when you know the the, the simple truth is is, is is that civil society depends on a handful of married couples mm-hmm. the the wife who may run the PTA and, and form these groups that do all these wonderful things but also the wife who makes the husband yeah. <laughs> um, coach little league yep. or uh, help out with the a bake sale on Sunday or or do, run the carpool or whatever. And there's, as Charles puts it, you know, there's a well-established finding in the social science literature that bachelors very rarely coach Little League because we tend to do what our wives tell us to do. <laughs> you would think they'd have more time. Right. And they but love it, sports. And... But, it, but it doesn't work that way yeah. because when it's actually when husbands – Husbands have to account for their time with their wives if if the wives are playing their role, to, so yeah. to speak, and the wives are the ones who tell the husbands what their role is going to be. And so coaching Little League is actually one of those acceptable excuses <laughs> to get out of the house, <laughs> to right? Sports to go yeah. do stuff, right? Yeah. And, um, and so when you have a lot of single moms, single moms don't have – first of all, they don't have the husband to boss around. Yes. But they also don't have – the time, just the time resources to do all of that other civil society stuff. No, that's that's right, and the and it, the that phenomenon about well, the the intact families are a building block of strong communities. I also argue the causality goes the other sure. way. But to start with that first point, the one thing is strong public. I. I Describe the village of Oostburg and the village of Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is the elites. A lot of liberal policy is saying, well, can we just make everybody else be like us, be like Chevy Chase? Right. Let's spend more money on their public schools and then they'll be like Chevy Chase. But no, what makes uh, Langley High School or Whitman High School near Chevy Chase, what makes these strong public schools is a ton of parental involvement right. and a ton of skilled parental involvement and that uh, the prerequisites of this is – uh, I mean, Murray will focus on sort of the the traits of the moms and dads living there, but I point to sort of a, a more mechanistic thing. White collar people are just more likely the the wives are more likely to have part time jobs. Right. The, the men are more likely to have flexible jobs. I showed up 
to tape this podcast at 10 a.m. Right. I didn't have to clock in at 8 a.m. I When I do the T-ball, my boss knows all spring I'm leaving at 4 o'clock every right. Friday so that I can do T-ball. Right. Because then if I'm not done with something, I file it after T-ball over the internet. And this is, this is more a trait of elite America. It's not as present if you're clocking in, if you're working a shift that your boss – you can't sign up to coach kindergarten girls basketball if – your boss gets to tell you what shifts you have, and you might be cycled in on a Saturday, right. and you don't know three weeks ahead of time. And the most important thing, though, is having two parents <laughs> in a house. It's just, it's just an absurdly powerful partnership if you wanted to right. talk about it from pragmatic ways. And that's that's the main effect there, that communities rely. And then uh, also just kids running around the neighborhood and playing with each other, having two parents, having somebody who's more likely to be home on the weekends or earlier in the day or even a stay-at-home mom, all those things make sort of communities stronger for kids. So the the intact families as a building block of strong communities is definitely important. But I also think it's important to talk about it the other way around. And this is where you sometimes make conservatives uncomfortable but also ultimately upset the liberals. Because do you own the liberals? <laughs> if you don't own the liberals, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if you read, I'm, I'm a good Straussian. If you read the first letter of each chapter, it's, it spells out "own the libs." Um, but the uh, but the, the marriage is difficult, and it need and raising kids is difficult, and it needs help, support, yeah. and help. And the idea I use the the Cyclops from the Odyssey as sort of the He's, he's this monster who lives on an island, and he's a beast. He has this one eye. And the funny thing is he lives in a cave with his wife and his kids. So he almost <laughs> is like a nice family guy. But why is he a beast? Because he has no interaction with the other mm-hmm. – the families don't interact. And so that's sort of sometimes a, a, a problem that conservatives fall into is this sort of little house on the prairie story can right. kind of be like the Cyclops story, right? And so – but you do need strong communities. And so when we sort of say, hey, the, lib- the liberal elites are practicing what we preach, why won't they preach it? And Sass says that in his good book, Them. But I say the, the preaching isn't the, the important part. The Helping them have the institutions that we rely on for strong families, that will give us more – Mm-hmm. Families. There will be more blue-collar marriage if there's more strong institutions in blue-collar places. So this is the inverse of uh, strong <clears throat> families are the building blocks of strong communities. Is strong communities are the framework for strong families. Yeah, no, I have no problem with that. It's it's there are feedback loops and all this kind of stuff. You know, one of the one of the metaphors I'm I've always been fascinated. I have this weird fascination with um um artificial reefs. Okay, <laughs> and um, there's some ama- there's some amazing uh, studies on this that, like, oil derricks have something like ten times the natural amount of wildlife in the area, <laughs> and it's because the derricks, particularly, and that's why in the Gulf of Mexico, when the when the whales no longer produce, they topple them and they become and they they yeah. go to the ocean floor and they become these incredibly rich ecosystems and. Because the first organism has something to grab onto. It, it starts with just being able to grab onto something, right? I mean, so much of the Caribbean is just desert, ocean desert, because yep. it's just flat and there's nothing there. But you throw a cinder block in, and all of a sudden barnacles attach to it, and then fish will go in little holes and they'll lay eggs in there. And then eventually, if, if it's big enough, predators come in. And and it's this cascading – It's, it's uh, 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 Russ Roberts talks about this a bit. You know, there's this famous passage that he likes to read about how – 
how difficult it is to build a prairie. Um, you would think, oh, it's just a bunch of grass, right? But yeah. it turns out there's all these intersecting eco, uh, you know, predator chains and, and, and species that feed off of each other. And it's actually very difficult to plan that kind of stuff. But when you can do it, if you can build it. And so metaphorically, you know, it used to be that a big factory was kind of like an artificial reef. Yep. It brought people in and then the other parts of the ecosystem helped to regulate it. And the churches were one and family is another one. And it turns and, out that once you shatter one of these ecosystems, it is very hard to rebuild it organically from above or from far away. It kind of has to bubble up on its own a little bit. But, but, it, doesn't but need... it, doesn't, it doesn't naturally always bubble up. Is one That's of right. right. I have uh, very good libertarian friends who like to talk about, well, you don't need to teach the grass how to grow. You need to remove the stones that are in the way. And when it comes to sort of regulations in business, that metaphor sort of works. When it comes to strong communities, I mean – I have six kids, so they kill huge parts of my yard all the time with all sorts of amazing experiments and that mm-hmm. sort of – when you remove the, the – you know, the – whatever it is, the wrestling mat they left on the yard for a week, grass doesn't necessarily grow. It might be too trampled down and weeds right. might sprout out. And so when you get rid of the things that have helped kill communities – and I talk about some uh, – sometimes big government, whether it's drugs or whatever – that doesn't mean that a community is going to bubble up if it lacks that initial infrastructure of something um, uh, to grab onto. But on the <clears throat> on the factory closing, it, it's important because I think we can get we can fall into being too materialistic in explaining struggling communities sure. and make it just be about money. Also, because Trump upsets so many people when he talks about free trade and immigration, we can poo-poo that story too much. So one thing I really try to do in this book is tell the story about the closing factories being really critical and really damaging in the destruction of these towns, but making it clear that you're skipping a step if you Mm. go from factory closed in in Manesson, Pennsylvania to rotted Main Street and drug overdoses in Fayette City, that you're skipping the step of the erosion of the other middle institutions. And comp- the social infrastructure. The social infrastructure. Yeah. And the th- so a great comparison, and I, I do make it in the book, is between Pittsburgh and Fayette County. So mm-hmm. Fayette County is due south of Pittsburgh, and it's it's crappy. It's Uniontown used to be this great, beautiful city, and now there's drug needles at the at the school bus stop. Okay, mm-hmm. and Fayette City. I say in the book, it's not a city. It's not even a town. It's a former town. Mm-hmm. And the guy I met at the newsstand, almost the only operating business there, said, "There's never going to be anything here." That's the way this nineteen twenty year old dude who actually has a job sees his town. So why is Fayette City so collapsed? While Pittsburgh today is thriving. Yeah, Pittsburgh's great. And I don't think Trump knew that. I think yeah. he thinks of Fayette City and Manesson when he – the rest of the, the valley down there when he thinks of Pittsburgh. Well, Pittsburgh was delivered a gut punch when the steel factories both yeah. – first from Europe, then uh, from Mexico, then from China started having these problems and then coal, all of their problems. But Pittsburgh had been planted thick with both institutions and Communities mm-hmm. with you had the the industrialists, the Carnegies, the Heinzes. Here's a museum. Here's a park. Here's a university. Not just as employers, but as things where people come together, 
have the meeting ground, have the sense of higher purpose. And then all the different neighborhoods, ethnic neighborhoods with here's the Italian neighborhood with whatever, St. Raphael's, here's Squirrel Hill with the synagogue. These, <clears throat> there was so much social infrastructure that it acted as something of a safety net mm-hmm. for the decades that Pittsburgh is in a downturn before it can get back up. So people and family and neighborhoods are preserved through these these dry periods and then can rise back up. In Fayette County, there's one Catholic church or one Protestant church in Uniontown and then maybe one other out in the country. There's one diner in Fayette City. There's all of these things are – it's just such a thin layer that's fine, that's good enough when the economics is good. But once it starts to crumble, once a diner closes and once a factory is gone, so many people get up and leave – that then the church closes down, that then the public schools lose all the involved parents and right. they become bad. And so you just fall through and collapse. So then good economic times come back to parts of Western PA, but there's not enough educated, skilled workers. There. Right. There's not enough – if you wanted to go and hire people, there's not enough places to show up to find those people from which to hire them. So that difference between Pittsburgh and Fayette County shows that – Economics are always huge, but you can deal with a spell of bad economics if you have strong civil society. Yeah, it's funny because I always use the comparison of Detroit to Pittsburgh. Right? Yeah. Detroit deindustrialized horribly and never really bounced back. And I mean, it's kind of having a renaissance now, but mm-hmm. uh, but Pittsburgh, you know, had a rough time with the steel stuff, but it it managed to it had um, the social capital right to 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 adjust. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. A very, I think we talked about this. The last time you were on, because uh, you talked about your, you know, your, your fixation with civil society, so you want to do keggers or whatever with your church and that kind yeah. of thing, yeah, um, or serving beer at baseball, whatever, whatever. And, <laughs> and anyway, which I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, I my first insight into this kind of dynamic was in college. I took over uh, a friend of mine and I. We became the first because I went because I'm the Rosa Parks of gender integration, and I went to an all women's college. We were the first male editors of the school newspaper. And we, uh, up until then, for decades, the way we did newspaper layout was with exacto knives, right? Yes. And you print them off, and then you cut them, and you have to lay them out with glue sticks on a page, and then you send them off to the printer, and blah 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 blah. And we were like, "This is crazy!" So we petitioned and got uh, one of the early Macs to do desktop publishing. Yep. And the problem was was that we used to it used to be all hands on deck. Every member of the staff had to be there. To help with the layout because it was a many hands make light work kind of thing. And that built up a sense of camaraderie. It built up a sense of like we're all on the paper. It's our club. And then all of a sudden when you switched it to where there's only one input and people just file their copy and then leave um, whilst one person puts everything on a page on a computer, all the esprit de corps, Mm -hmm. all of the camaraderie just disappeared, right? And that's part of – you know, it's it's a microcosm version of some of the stuff that – you know, you get all the way from Schumpeter to Putnam of this idea of the these the artificial reefs of necessity when they yep. go away because of automation or efficiency, you lose this you lose the ability for large numbers of people to feel needed. That's right. So, where would you put that in context of like how much to blame? How much blame should we put on capitalism itself? Well, so there's there's a whole section on on sort of ruthless efficiency. <laughs> 
which is exactly what you're talking right. about, destroying some of this, citing Tyler Cowen's work about guys who might not have been that productive, but we didn't notice it had jobs. And there right. was a real good effect, which was these right. guys having jobs, even if there was a negative economic effect. I mean, a strong of, back and a good work ethic used to be almost all you needed to get into the middle class, right? Yeah. And the um, and so I just modern technology, without leaving your house, now you... You might be like the king of this, Jonah, from what I know about your life. You can make yourself a good cup of coffee. You can uh, you can get all the channels. You can do all the research. You can order your groceries. I mean, my wife relies on ordering groceries because yeah. you can't take six kids to a grocery store. Um, you can if you, you want to live a sitcom kind of life. <laughs> as long as you don't mind the damage that they do. I think that's the way a lot of mothers, uh, Irish Catholic mothers, deal with it. It's just don't care about the damage and the, and the loss of the store. But <clears throat> all of these things are great. And they can create a world in which one of the things I, I talk about here is the immediate needs that bring us into the door. I say Bernie Sanders could say, why do people go to the diner? They need food and they need coffee. So we can give everybody a coffee maker, ship them coffee grounds once a month and bring them food even once a day, have taxpayers pay for it. People then get it for free. And then think of all the free time they have. They could all get together in a park. They could get together over chess. They could do whatever they wanted because they're not forced to go to the diner. So As Nancy Pelosi said with Obamacare, you're not job locked. You can be a poet. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and But that's not how people work. Right. They, they're not going to get together. And this this applies to religious congregations too. I, I use Aunt Gertrude in – as a. I don't actually have an Aunt Gertrude. Most of the other names are my actual kids. But – the, uh, the one way that I, I – I quote Murray in this, but I say, when institutions, including local church congregations, have a less visible role in the material needs of the community, many in the community feel less drawn to them. I'm writing mostly not about the needy turning away from institutions, nonprofits, churches, but about the formerly needed, the average community member who sees church or some other organization as the means through which she serves her neighbor – Quote, quoting Murray, I say, to exist and to be vital, little platoons must have something to do. When people don't see the immediate purpose of belonging to institutions, they turn away from these institutions. Then they lose the less obvious, less immediate benefits of community, such as a sense of purpose, the modeling, the camaraderie, the hidden safety net, the prods to take on tasks one might never think of on one's own. While being less obvious and less immediate, these benefits of community are crucial and their loss is costly. And I think that's exactly what you're yeah. what you're talking about. No, it's it's and it's a it's a the, this thing about being needed, which is something Arthur Brooks talks a lot about is that that's where you get your meaning is this sense of feeling needed. I should also say that sometimes when you need people, the best place to go is ZipRecruiter. Whether it's in civil society or in the private sector, we all know how hard and how challenging Hiring people can be. Finding the right candidates takes a long time. There's so many applicants. Well, ZipRecruiter makes it easy. And you can find ZipRecruiter at ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. 
ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my dear listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Uh, um, so one of the... We're in, I think we're in violent agreement about most of this stuff. And, but what do you do about it, right? And this is the question I hate the most when I was on my book tour. Is, mm-hmm. Okay, really persuasive. What do you do about it? And I only basically had two answers. One was we need to teach people gratitude for this, the civilization that we have inherited and which has done so much for so many. And, and basically just friggin' federalism on steroids, sending power down the most local level yeah. possible, right? I mean, and and I'd agree. And so the you referred to my first book, The Big Ripoff. One of the critics of it on a panel once said, it's great. You're reading Export-Import Bank is bad. Sugar subsidy is bad. Ethanol is bad. And then it's the index. And they, they wanted the chapter <laughs> on solutions. So I wrote my second book and I had a chapter on solutions. And I'd like to go back and excise it with an exacto knife because I disagree <laughs> with half. I think I talked about the gold standard in that. So this one, in the end, they said you need some sort of uh, chapter on uh, – on solutions, and what I what I write is that it's hard to write that chapter in this case because the the nature of the problems is so thoroughly local. I said what I write is when the solution is twenty thousand towns each taking steps to revitalize their community and one million little platoons forming and deploying on their little patches, it's not possible or productive to write the typical quote solutions chapter. You can't write the chapter when the solution is largely something like you should go to church or you should start a T ball team. You should create an institution such as a weekly coffee meeting with other old guys in your town. You should attach yourself to a little platoon and volunteer there. You should spend less time watching cable networks and more time asking after your neighbors. Are there public policies that could make this easier? Sure. But again, the value of civil society is directly tied to it not being centralized and usually to its not being governmental. So while there are no big policy solutions, there are definitely smaller solutions. So my the stuff for the federal government is largely stop crushing civil society. Right. So, A, stop trying to chase the church out of the public square. This is the single best thing about Donald Trump's victory. It's why my priest friends were were very grateful because they were afraid that some of our institutions would be chased out of right. the public square. And we know that this is actually a desire of the left. And if you care about the poor and the working class, you can't be chasing these crucial institutions out of the public square. Government does crowd out institutions so welfare, federal programs, state programs should look at ways that they crowd out less and and uh, devolve power. There are other little things I talk about. Unions in the U.S. and U.K. are set up to be almost antisocial, inherently antagonistic. Well, in places like Northern Europe, there people join them because that's where you get your your unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. And then they become these robust institutions that provide training and modeling. And here's advice on how to save for retirement. Here's advice on how to grow your skills and move up the ladder. And they become these real institutions. But we have a a structure of laws here that just simply does not allow that. And then there's a couple other little things. Our, Our tax code 
subsidizes people living in bigger houses. People should be allowed to live in bigger houses if they want, but there's no reason our policy should prefer that over et cetera. But most of it is going to be something of a a civic great awakening would be the the solution. I don't think it's impossible, though, because, again, the rich places are not – you can't make a million Chevy Chases. You can have more – Oostbergs and more Salt Lake cities. Mm-hmm. The the raw material there is doesn't involve some super class of elites or a ton of money. It right. involves people being attached to key institutions. In the examples I cite throughout the book, almost all of them are religious. But the the key point is that they are a a joint effort aiming at some greater good that people in sort of physical proximity are are engaged in together. And you can't have a big federal program <laughs> doing this. Even the federal programs and statewide programs to promote marriage sort of miss the mark because, again, you need that reef for, right. for marriage to take hold, and that's going to be on a very local level. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I described it is that when you, when you clear-cut the sort of forests of civil society – People are still look. People are you know hardwired to want to live in a community, right? What Robert Nisbet called the quest for yeah. community, right? And so, if, but if you get rid of all the trees, you can see the distant horizon, and you end up looking to Washington. Yep. And the history of progressivism and all other forms of totalitarianism, <laughs> I will bad, yeah, are all about creating a national community, and that and telling people that you can get that sense of social solidarity and fellow feeling from. Sea to shining sea in relation to the central state in Washington. All you have to do is get everybody's favorite president on the mall on the 4th of July to have a great fireworks show. Right. Yeah. And that'll do it. And, and, and so bringing us back to Trump, the reason people – one reason that the early people looked to him was because, again, they didn't have a way to exercise their political muscles and they thought this guy's going to be us. Because they didn't have a sense of community and they thought, well, the problem is Obama dividing us all. How many times did you hear that? Obama's dividing us all. And I didn't feel that divided by Obama in part because – well, but we're the wrong people to ask, right? right. It was my job to criticize him, so I right. thought that was fine. But for me, the I've got tons of liberals in our parish. We're just a regular old Catholic parish and uh, a lot of my friends are, are liberals. They're donating to Wendy Davis. They're, I didn't feel divided. We're incredibly racially diverse in, uh, in, in that world and again, I didn't feel divided. But that's because I was part of these strong communities for joint higher purpose. If you're out there getting all your news from cable TV, then yes, you're going to probably feel more divided. If you don't see any politics except for the central stuff, you're going to A, feel alienated, but B, want that central power to solve your problems. Right, right. And you know, I don't know why you have to keep bringing this back to Trump. I never want to talk about <laughs> Trump. Uh, I actually was trying to steer it towards Obama, right? Yep. If you read Obama's second inaugural, it's very clear that the way he sees – it's the life of Julia America, right? Yep. He's saying the things that you can't do on your own, the federal government must help you with. Government is the word for the things we do together. Yeah, which is uh, – makes me want to flip the safety on my rifle, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, and and I, I half-jokingly write that it's uh, an aspirational idea for some of these people who want to clear-cut right. the force. And, and Bernie Sanders, I quote him in the book saying, um, I don't believe in charity. That, that, right. And then, you know, that, that government should take care of our basic needs and that there's something demeaning. This is an interesting – idea. It's so foreign to me, alien to me, that I, I sometimes have trouble arguing against it. But it's present on uh, in progressive minds in a lot of places that 
charity is demeaning and the state providing all your needs avoids that because yeah. maybe you don't have to ask your neighbor. Maybe you don't have to get in line. Maybe you don't have to fill out a form. But no, it, my view of, of state welfare is they're asking you to pee in a cup right. to, to make sure that they, they assume that you're trying to rip them off as the very first thing or they just throw it out to everybody that there's something so inhuman about that and in the book I talk about the the Mormon welfare system voluntary set up to the church that's done on a more human level and some people think that's absurdly sort of smothering or embarrassing I think if you start from the premise that everybody needs help at some point right. then there's nothing uh, demeaning about that see the way I, the way I think about it um, it's like if you have a grown son and He's down on his luck and he needs help and he asks you for money. You'll give him money probably because, mm -hmm. you know, depending on the specifics, yeah. right? But there are enormous strings attached to it, right? There are certain expectations about your son changing his behavior, about you being able to call him up in the middle of the night and saying, did, now, did you do your resume like you promised you would when I lent you this money and all that kind of yeah. stuff? When the federal government gives people money, the whole point is to take any of those moral, cultural, social capitally guilty strings and detach them. And, and it's so like, you know, the government cannot care about your self-worth. It can only care about no. your net worth, yeah. right? And But family can do that. And also extended sort of families like churches and stuff, you can help people out. But, you, you know, like the Salvation Army, you know, it helps an enormous number of people, but it also gave them a talking to, you know, and... Yeah. um. The Bernie Sanders vision of how charity is demeaning, it's demeaning, but that, that to a certain in a certain sense, but feeling demeaned by having to ask also is a wake up call to get your crap together, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and those are the sort of invisible transmission belts of civil society that, you know, if I ask you for money, you know, um, or if I ask you for a favor it is deep in our lizard brains that it's understood that, that then I owe you something. <laughs> yeah. Well, but also, but more important than that is that the way in which these things are relational and transactional, that we're not keeping a book of, well, now I owe him one. We're, we're sort of, it's a, a more permanent relationship. Right. So, and for me, the one great example is always helping friends move. Yeah. I, just if somebody asks me to help him move and I'm able to, I do, even though it's a huge sacrifice for my wife who then has to take care of all the kids that yeah. day and it's a whole Saturday and you just do it. And I don't know everybody I help move, but I do know that when I asked friends to help me move, 18 people showed up. Yeah. I was panicking that I didn't have enough work for all of them to do. And the it, so it wasn't transactional. If there's any financial analogy, it's like a bank. You put in a lot of stuff and eventually you pull out a lot of stuff. Right. And maybe before you die, you've pulled out more than you put in or you put in more than you pulled out. But just you know that there's going to be putting in and and and, and withdrawing and all that stuff. I wasn't so, trying to m reduce yeah. this into a purely mercenary thing. It's That's where – where life is yeah. is like you want to feel like you helped your friends and you also you know it's like we did an episode on homelessness and uh one of the points i always make is you know there's some comedian who talks about this about how people say you know you should be compassionate to the homeless because you could be one one disaster and you could be homeless tomorrow and it's sort of like the movie trading places right yeah. you know the the number of things that would have to go wrong for me to be homeless even in yeah. six months, 
I mean, I, it breaks your heart to think about what they would be, but yeah. like all of my wife's family would have to be wiped out. My yeah. family would have to be wiped out, right? All of my friends would have to think I'm a pariah. Um, cause I have a, I have a significant amount of social capital, probably not as much as you do, but like if your house burned down, people would put you up. It tomorrow. costs a lot more social capital to get eight people and a pit bull put up than I understand, but <laughs> then, but if the need were yeah, there, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the, so there's this interesting num- question that uh, pollsters have been asking recently: If you needed a thousand dollars in the next ten days, could you get it? Mm-hmm. And I think, let's say I had no income, but I needed a thousand dollars. Is the question so much, do I have connections to rich people or is it do I – I mean my parish, when we had a government shutdown, it's rallying behind the people who are suffering from the shutdown. And you're exactly right that we have so many things that we can uh, plug into. I'm living at the overlap of the two types of strong communities I'm talking about, the elites and the strong religious communities. And so it's such a thick net of of safety that – I don't see as much a need for the welfare state as people who are more alienated. But I also think it's one reason that we, so many in the media, didn't see the appeal of the guy saying the American dream was dead. Right. Because it was alive and well. Even if the average journalist is is making just above the median income in the country, he he loves his job. He loves his colleagues. He has people at other publications who are his friends. He probably doesn't go to church, but he probably right. lives in a neighborhood where you go to brunch and you recognize and the the waiter and the bartender all know you. They're just more plugged into. And he went to college, which is this amazing place where you're all engaged in the same pursuit and you're seeing each other day to day. Right. And that that is this this experience of solidarity and cohesion that you don't find in many other places and that a lot of the working class, if they don't have those strong religious institutions, they don't have that solidarity and cohesion. So getting back to the solution part of it, right? Early in the Trump presidency, I wrote this column about how I was going to forgo the satisfaction of calling out the left's hypocrisy. Instead, I want to get buy-in from them in the sense that whenever there's a Democrat in office mm-hmm. – any talk about states' rights, any talk about the Tenth Amendment or federalism or localism is unpatriotic, dangerous, scary, right? You know, um, and then the second a, Repu- a Republican gets in office. There's a New York Times op-ed. There's a New York <laughs> There's this interesting idea that, you know, we should revisit federalism, right? And and I've, I have a mental file of how many times this has happened over the last 20 years. And... The thing is, when you talk to young liberals, progressive types, and you say to them, you know, I want the country to be more weird, right? I want – if Austin wants to be weird, it should allow to be to stay weird. If you – I want this to be a more interesting country to drive across, and that means you need a definition of diversity that is more about variety, right? There's more about different places – different institutions being allowed to be sticky in ways that are horrifying to other people. And that don't meet your sort of sterile one-size-fits-all thing. So, right. Yeah. So one of those weirdnesses is going to be uh, Opus Dei Catholics. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> have eight yeah. kids. Yeah. And, that, that, and um, I've made this plea to libertarian friends, but I, I think, yeah, maybe – this is your your hopeful little way to end this is that maybe Trump is enough to make people say, OK, yeah, we do need people to be able to live their own lives because 
when we're talking about strong communities, there's there's an us, and for them to, for there to be an us, there needs to be a them. Right, and that's uncomfortable to talk about, but it's the way we live. Hopefully, the us versus them is like. Pelham versus Eastchester, where it's friendly rivalry. Maybe there's one fist fight a year between the, the opposing quarterbacks, but that's it. Um, and hopefully the us versus them is what most uh, Protestants and most Catholics are today. Hopefully it's right. it's my parish, St. Andrews, and the, the neighboring Orthodox uh, synagogue next door, where there's total, there's uh, there's love, there's respect, but there's there's a distance and there's sure. a difference, and we have different days, and we, we run in different circles, and that's got to be sort of the patchwork of America, like the neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. Right. And that that has to be accepted, and it's not going to be accepted when... Kamala Harris is by the left when Kamala Harris is the one calling for national unity and da da da. But maybe the left can come along when it's when they see Trump on the Washington on the Lincoln Memorial on July fourth, and they in their eyes they see a Mussolini. We say okay, so maybe now is the time to strengthen right. and to protect the liberty of the little platoons to be as weird and as different and as little as they want to be. Yeah, but the, and I'll just bring it on a down note to spare you. Um, <laughs> You know the the emergency declaration stuff, which I assume you're against. Yep. Yeah. Um, if and, and uh, it was David Harsani wrote a good piece about this. Uh, if you actually listen to the Democrats opposing the the Trump declaration, they're all saying that's not an emergency. But I can't wait till we're in power yes. so we can declare a real emergency, right? So they're they're just they have a policy dispute, but they don't care about the violence against the Constitution itself. And um, the Green New Deal, if taken seriously, which I think we got to be a little careful about how seriously we should take it. Mm-hmm. I go back and forth on that. Um, is would spell a death knell to civil society <laughs> yep. in, in this country. And um, but the weird thing on the nationalist side, I mean, the socialist side, obviously socialism has always been... Uh, incredibly violently opposed to civil society yeah. and competing and spheres of power right yeah. and it's 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 uh, homogenizing in every way right rationalizing every way. the the weird the weird mental hiccup in the nationalist stuff is that almost every nationalist i know including the ones who i think are sincere and good hearted about it you know, like rich lowry and mm-hmm. and all the rest um they have this nostalgia for 19th century america and uh, the great things that america did but if you could drive or ride a horse across 19th century America, you would find incredible variety of communities with real yep. hard, sticky institutions, you know, some of which were truly bigoted, which was bad, but a lot of which were just free association differences about religion, about way of life and all the rest. And the reason why nationalism had a certain appeal, because it was the one th- Nationalism spoke to the handful of things everyone could agree on. Yep. And everything else was about f- doing our own way. And now there's this idea that nationalism is the only thing. It, it was a, a thinner nationalism. Ben Sass has a, a phrase in them that at first made me roll my eyes when he said, America isn't like China. America is an idea. And, you know, this is a big problem. I know, I know I the argument. Yeah, yeah. But as he went down he, and he talked about America manifesting itself in all these little communities that were different. And so the idea was sort of uh, that he was talking about was not so much, you know, the, the, the stuff in Bush's second inaugural, but was more 
Yeah, there's going to be a Memorial Day parade. That's how you manifest your nationalism, your patriotism, right. is in your own town's Memorial Day parade, which is different from the next town's. And so the idea, I could almost get behind him saying that it was an idea. The idea is all these little towns are going to manage their business to the extent possible, and they're going to be different. Right. No, exactly. All right. So I want to. I, you see, you're looking at your watch. We started late. We're going along. Um, everybody, you know, regardless of the fact that it's a great book, it's an important book. Oh, this is one closing question I, I did want to have. I think people need to read the book. The problem is, is the people who most need to read the book aren't reading books, right? The people with high levels of social capital are almost by definition going to be reading this, or or, or at least that's your market. How, you know, is, uh, you know, you make this point in the book about how um, the people in the lower class or the lower working, you know, below the middle class don't have these values. They don't go to church regularly and all the rest. Isn't part of it a chicken or the egg problem in the sense that the reason why a lot of these people are in the lower middle class is because they self-sorted because they didn't have these values, right? Yeah, they didn't but, have the success sequence. And so the people who do have the success sequence, they have the income mobility and they move out of it. But I, I, I channel uh, Murray and coming apart here and saying there just used to be a lot more churn sure. in, in that and that people would fall into the, the working class and the lower class. But communities could help bring them back up. But now geographic sorting and the fact that in those in those blue collar places there isn't strong community, the, the churn is lost. Yeah. OK. I, I know you have to go. So um, for all the important reasons why you should buy the book, you should buy the book for friends, all of that kind of stuff. The guy has six kids. <laughs> He's got to make a living. So uh, do what you can. And uh, Tim, thanks for coming on. Hope to see you again. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Sure. All right. So uh, – Carney has left the building. What is our current go-to sound effect for people leaving the building or leaving uh, the studio? I've been using the Star Trek slide door noise. Okay. All right. That's that's okay. Which sounds kind of – I mean, I like it in the show, but in isolation, it, it, it clearly sounds like a, like a, I don't know, a hard sponge hitting a wall or something. Does it really? It's, it's squeaky. It's weird. I didn't – Huh. It squeaks. I and it's not just the file I found. It's I've watched episodes of the show, and that's what it sounds like. Huh. I mean, outside of its environment, it's just noticeably uh, analog. I guess it always bothered me once I found out that the way those doors opened in the show is they had like two teamsters on either side of the door pulling it as the actor approached, <laughs> and then shoving it back together. And if you imagine like two fat guys with like powdered donut stains on their faces doing it it kind of ruins the whole modern feel of it but no yeah. well i mean wasn't that uh better than doing it with cgi <laughs> <laughs> isn't that like kind of the uh the essence of um the, the jetsons version of the future that there would be uh all of this technology but it would still be like shockingly primitive in some ways uh, like there, there's there's some work of science fiction. I think, I think you're thinking of the Flintstones, where they like they move their cars by pedaling their feet on the ground. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's some work of science fiction. I'm totally blanking on it right now. But they, the author or the creator, envisioned all of these fantastic uh, innovations in the future. But one thing that was not that did, just did not register for this person was the possibility that we wouldn't need servants anymore yeah. to like run our household. Uh, so, so it's just sometimes the seers of the future have big blank spots. No, that's right. Um, like there's a famous this vision of what the world would be like. I think in two that year two thousand, 
and it's got the these everyone's flying essentially biplanes all over the place mm-hmm. and and there's this like young man and young woman and they're flirting like sitting on the wings of their biplane or something like that and the guy says oh hi 47238b it is so great to see you <laughs> you know there's this idea it's also like and we should, we could do a whole show about this about um why it is that people think in the future Everyone will dress identically the same, <laughs> um, but there was so much of that in in sci-fi. This is one of the few things I actually like a lot about um, Hunger Games is that they recognize that when you get crazy rich in the capital city, they all dress incredibly outlandishly, trying to like outdo each other. Yeah, that's true. Um, which is a much more plausible future. Like it makes sense that like the 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 lumpen proletariat in districts 12 and 13 all basically dress the same because th- dressing the same is a feature of poverty mm-hmm. dressing outlandishly different and flamboyantly is a feature of wealth and court life and that kind of thing and they got that right i thought yeah but uh what'd you think of tim uh you mean of his book or either actually <laughs> <laughs> well i'll 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 limit it to the book which i felt so I I I had the chance to just talk with him, not in the way that you did on the podcast, but just casually about the book because he he sits next to me when he shows up here, uh, and I, I intuit- It's Really creepy because he sits like right next to you, like like almost sharing your chair. No, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's very odd. But you no, like he, movies about gladiators. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> been to a Turkish prison. Um, he uh, I I the book felt. I, I sort of intuited a part of it that he then revealed to me was missing, or that was in the book, but then removed. Namely, the the sort of uh, root about the Jews. No, <laughs> no, but they're always they're always out there controlling the weather and whatnot. Uh, no, but the the part that he was in there but was removed was something a discussion of the rootlessness of of young of like twenty to early thirty somethings uh-huh. who who don't who are doing fine but aren't really like attached to anything. And aren't clearly suffering from any like social malady, but still have this vague sense that like maybe should I should I belong to something? Like, yeah. Is there something I should be doing? And I don't have, I I I I have some civil society attachments here, but I, I still feel like I could do a better job of it. And uh, and I know that there are people who my age in the city who have that much worse, um, but that's a that's a much smaller problem than the ones he describes else. Elsewhere in the book. Yeah. No, but I mean, there's also in your 20s, I mean, it's, you shouldn't go on rumspringa, but, you know, <laughs> but it is that time where you're sort of, you know, when I was saying earlier about how the pursuit of happiness is an individual right, but you find happiness in communities, in your 20s is kind of when you're figuring out what those institutions and communities are going to be for yourself. And the only way you figure that out is by making some mistakes, right? And choosing some wrong paths and learning from them. So I don't think there's anything terrible about the rootness per se, about the rootlessness of, of millennials. It depends on how they respond to it. And what I don't like about the response from so many of the left-wing ones is the, and some of the right-wing ones now, is the way they think that they'll get that sense of belonging and meaning is from politics or from the federal government. Um, Yuck. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've been since liberal fascism, I've been talking about how the government can't love you. And there is this this. Oh, that's what I want to ask 
Carney about was the whole Rusty Reno, let's bring back the New Deal in the name of Catholic Solidarity crap. Um, oh. Because that would have been good because that cuts across some of his loyalties there. Um, but uh, anyway, I find the, I, I completely agree with Rusty almost, Reno called. He wants you back. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and there's some other religious stuff that I wanted to talk to about Carney about, but um, we'll get him on another time to do that. So uh, we have some exciting podcasts uh, coming up in the pipeline, uh, details of which we'll share with you um, in a bit. Uh, or not. Or not. You know, maybe we'll just drop some surprises on you. Um, I'm going to do some podcasts on the road in undisclosed locations, which should be interesting. And uh, which probably will end up meaning that a fan favorite uh, tradition on this podcast will be returning, which is that of Jack Butler reading ads. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, which I know many of you care about passionately. And... Um, other than that, there are some other big announcements coming down the pike, but I'm just not about to tell you about them. And uh, anything else that we need to talk about? Oh, there's a there's an ongoing Twitter poll about who has what Twitter feed has the best dogs. Well, within the world of conservatism, within right wing Twitter, isn't it? Isn't it limited to? Right-wing I'm not Twitter? sure that's true, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. I, I'm not sure. It all... seems to be because you're up against Martha McSally's dog right now. Yeah, but that's randomized, so I haven't looked at all the seeds and. Regardless, if you think you know, it's it's a big bracket. I mean, there are a lot of lot of contenders, and if I can't win or at least do well in a Twitter poll about who has the best Twitter account for tweeting dogs, then my life has no meaning. Yeah. <laughs> um, so please watch out for that. Uh, It'd be like me losing a, a race that was only and the only people allowed to enter were people who had read the first four Dune books. That's right. Or you know, or just. A marathon among conservative think tank research assistants. Oh, yeah. That would be <laughs> – well, frankly, if someone beat me in that, I'd want to become that person's friend because as far as I know, there's no real equivalent uh, like to my specific subset of overlapping demographic indicators in D.C. It's probably, possibly true. Uh, I'm sui generis, as they say. Well, there's one person he knows who he is who may qualify, and I'll just say, we'll see if we'll see if he he texts me about this afterward. Okay, because we are friends. I found him. This sounds like a really heartwarming story. <laughs> it's the nature. Look, I mean, I'm in my rootless twenties. I'll take anything I can get. Oh, it just occurred to me. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about because we had a lot of naturalistic metaphors and ecosystem kind of ev- evolutionary things. When we were talking about the uh, – not not about um, artificial reefs but about rebuilding a prairie and stuff, there's that video, which I think we've linked to before, about what happened and was it Yellowstone when they reintroduced wolves? Uh, I vaguely remember this. Yeah. Um, but like Yellowstone, Yellowstone stopped being a, an essentially authentic natural environment because of fire suppression stuff and getting rid of predators like wolves and all sorts of things. And there's this great video, which I think may take some liberties with the real story, but the principle is really fantastic, where when they reintroduced wolves, you know, this is getting to the point that Tim was making about, you know, uh, sometimes you need to put in some effort to get the grass to regrow. It's not just removing the rock. It's actually, you know, tilling the soil and fixing things. When they reintroduced wolves to, uh, I think it's Yellowstone, 
the wolves made it less likely that the deer and other ungulates um, hung out um, on the water's edge. And because the wolves knew that's where you would hunt them. And so that allowed for all sorts of native grasses, river grasses, to regrow, which then created more uh, habitat for certain small mammals. And it then allowed for other kinds of trees to come back. And um, and then that allowed for uh, badgers um, to come back into the river. And that, in turn, allowed for the damming, which brought in all sorts of migratory birds that would then stop um, rather than fly past. And it restored the ecosystem um, all because, you know, wolves were keeping deer from running everything. And I think that there's an analogy somewhere in there. But, you know, people say, oh, look, all you're proposing is the government do less. That's what you propose for everything. Um, I think there's an interesting analogy in there to what, you know, that the government, if it looks at these things like an ecosystem and is aware of what Hayek called the knowledge problem, there are ways it can work to restore civil society in certain places, even if it costs a little money, um, which would be fine by me, but with an eye towards not destroying these ecosystems, but allowing them to be restored. And that's the point I wanted to get in there before. It was driving me crazy. We probably cut out the moment where my brain shut down and I was agonizing about it, but it was in there. It doesn't really matter what happens at Yellowstone anyway, because that supervolcano is going to erupt any moment. That's right. And when the, caldera, when the caldera goes, we'll all be dead. Yeah, so it'll destroy that ecosystem and it'll destroy civil society too because it'll destroy everything else. So actually it'll only destroy life in most of North America and, and put uh, the rest of the globe into a nuclear winter. So, nice. so which is great. So at least we did end on a positive note after all. Um, so anyway. What ending are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, it was dark humor. Um, anyway, uh, uh, thanks to Tim Carney for coming in. Thanks, Jack. Thanks to everybody else. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for the reviews. Uh, thank you for the comments on Twitter and elsewhere. And uh, I'll see you next time. Was that was that wish casting or an honest question? <laughs> All right, you ready? I was wondering.